Hey guys, Tash here, and I'm just popping on to give a bit of a disclaimer before we start this episode. For some reason, the audio is a bit distorted in parts. Um, our voices are like pitched down quite a bit. I don't know why that happened, but I will do my best to make sure it doesn't happen again, and I hope it's not too distracting. Um, thanks again for listening, and I hope you enjoy this one. Hello and welcome to Weird Things and Wine, the show where we sip wine and talk about all things weird. My name is Tash. And my name's Mia. And today we will be talking about the mysterious disappearance of Flight MH370. Shall we jump right into it? I think we shall. (laughs) (laughs) Cheers. Cheers. Should I start with a disclaimer now? Sure. Full disclaimer. We mean no disrespect to anyone directly or indirectly related to anyone mentioned in this podcast, nor are we suggesting the information we speak on is fact. We are attempting attempting to reiterate the information found on the internet and are expressing our own opinions on the matter. Okay, awesome. Um, I'm going to put another disclaimer in just to mention that we do have a couple of dogs and a couple of cats running around. (laughs) And we just love them so much. So if they're loud and annoying, we apologize, but I'm going to do my best to keep them quiet. On March 8th, 2014, a plane full of passengers took off from a Malaysian airport, never to be seen again. After years of investigation, we're no closer to understanding what happened or where all those people are. Hijacking? Wormhole? Government cover-up? One thing is for sure, the disappearance of flight MH370 is one of the strangest mysteries in aviation history. Let's talk about it. So Mia, do you remember when this happened? I think so. (laughs) I do remember when it happened. We had one friend obsessed with it. Yeah. And I can't remember anyone else talking about it, apart from maybe like a social studies teacher. Do you remember? I remember, like you said, our one friend who was like obsessed with it. He would like go to the computer lab and search on Google Images trying to like find the plane. That's what internet sleuths today are made of. Yeah. So I remember that, but I don't really remember any of the fallout. Yeah. Are you like a nervous flyer? I want to say yes and no. I fly quite often and my favorite thing is turbulence. I'm also terrified of turbulence and I'm terrified of the takeoffs and landings. Like I will hardcore white knuckle grip my seat. Yeah. But then I smile and laugh as soon as we're in the air because like, you know, it's fine. Like we're fine. It's fine. I lived through this experience and it wasn't that bad. <laughs> yeah. Are you a nervous flyer? I didn't think I was until I had to be on a plane for like 12 hours in a row. And about halfway through, I started freaking out. Oh no. And it was like the first time I'd really been on a plane before. About halfway through, I woke up from my nap and I immediately was just like, okay, give me the parachute. I'm I'm getting out of this plane. I'm diving. This is over. This is over. We're done. Oh no. (laughs) Shall we get into a bit of the background on flight MH370? Okay, let's let's do it. MH370 was an Malaysian Airlines flight and it was a Boeing 77 and it could carry up to 282 passengers. Mhm. So I think that's a fairly good sized plane. Uh-huh. So to be a little more specific, it was a Boeing 777-200ER. It was 63.7 meters. Okay, you meant specific details. Oh, I have specifics. (laughs) Let me tell you. 
roughly 63.7 meters or 209 feet and one inch by 60.9 meters, which is roughly 199 feet and 11 inches in wingspan, and it's 18.7 meters or 61 feet and five inches in height. So this specific plane had been flying since 2002, and it had no real major accidents in the years that it had been flying. So I did check up on any other instances of this specific model having malfunctions, and there really weren't any. Um, I mean, there were obviously, you know, stuff that happened, but all of them were either pilot error or due to the equipment not being maintained well enough. Nothing was to do with the design flaw or the function of the airplane. Its last maintenance check was just two weeks before, and I think it had like um, another uh, routine check. Yeah, the day before. Check, yeah. So it was like kept up to date, and there was nothing that they could tell was wrong with it. And it was one of two daily scheduled flights, so it had flown this flight path had been done so many times over and over again. Like we said, it took off on March eighth, twenty fourteen, and it was from Kuala Lumpur in Malaysia. It took off at 12.42 a.m. and was supposed to land at 6.30 a.m. in Beijing. From what we know, the weather was good. There was no storms or projected windstorms or anything. So the flight was only supposed to be five and a half hours, but they had enough fuel for seven and a half hours, just in case. So there was 227 passengers, supposedly, on board, and 12 crew members, including the pilots. Um, the captain was named Zahari Aman Sahad, and the first officer was named Farik Abdul Hamid. Apologies for any misspeech in pronunciation. The captain was 53 years old, and he had specifically 18,365 hours. <laughs> yeah, which is a lot of hours that of flying experience. quite a lot, yes. And I think he had a good amount of hours as well, flying specifically in this type of aircraft too. And he had been flying since 1981. My goodness. <laughs> The co-pilot was only 27, and he had 2,763 hours of flight experience, and he had been flying since 2007. So, interesting fact that I found. This, reportedly, was his last flight before he would have been fully licensed to fly a Boeing 777. Yeah, as far as we know, both of them were really experienced. The passengers, most from were from China and Malaysia. I think a hundred around 150 were from China and 50 were from Malaysia. Um, the rest were from an assortment of, of countries. Uh, two were specifically from Iran and had boarded the flight with stolen passports, but they were ruled out as suspects and were thought to be just immigrating. That was the first place that the Malaysian government checked when things kind of went down with the plane. Mia's going to fill us in a little bit on the specifics of the design of the aircraft. I've already mentioned the dimensions, so it's a pretty large aircraft. I've flown in many Boeings in my life, and I'm sure that I've flown in one of these. In all of my flights, which have been almost two a year since I was zero years old, I've never experienced anything wrong with the plane, and they've pretty much always been Boeing, so I think it's safe to say that they're pretty a reputable brand. 
The system on this specific aircraft was reportedly pretty reliable, and the area in which they were flying in had seven satellites. Um, and we'll talk about more about how that works a little bit later. So every commercial aircraft is equipped with a black box that is supposed to be designed to act as a beacon once it's in contact with salt water with a radius of two kilometers. That's not very much. No. <laughs> um, so it only like pings out to two kilometers? I think so. If yeah. you're in the middle of the ocean, two kilometers is nothing. So I did dive quite a bit into how black boxes work and specifically for MH370, there was one theory that if they had crashed slightly further out than, you know, their diagrams predicted, the ocean floor might have been too deep for this beacon to even like reach the surface of above water. Fun fact about black boxes. <laughs> They are tested to withstand an impact of 750 kilometers per hour, which is also 466 miles per hour, in case you were curious. Um, they're designed to hold a static load of 2.25 tons for five minutes, the maximum temperature of 1,100 degrees Celsius. Oh, wow. Yeah. How do they even test that? For one hour. I, that's what I was thinking. <laughs> like, dang, that's hot. <laughs> Um, and water pressure equivalent to the depths of 6,000 meters, or 19,700 feet. However, it said that the deepest part of the ocean where the plane went down was 8,047 meters, which is 2,000 meters too deep for the black box. However- it's kind of like a design flaw. I, I know. Yeah. So see, they're tested to withstand this, but that doesn't mean that they can't withstand more. No, they're just not proven yeah. to. If it only has, like, the vicinity of two kilometers, like, that doesn't really help. They're not going to go down no. at the bottom of the ocean for it. No, I know. <laughs> <laughs> this is also a fact that you probably know. Black boxes are designed to record all the cockpit happening. So any conversations, announcements, excuse me, switches, engine sounds. But most black boxes nowadays re-record after 120 minutes. After 120 minutes has passed, they start re-recording so over the footage. Like, oh, so they kind of like erase what they had before? Why does that help? See, that's kind of what I was thinking for this specific case, right? Mm -hmm. Because how long was the flight even... Five and a half hours long. Yeah. The chances <laughs> are, right, the pivotal moments when the cockpit recordings really needed to be there would have been re-recorded, probably by the time they found the black box. What if the plane crashed? Would the black box keep recording after the crash? I think it's meant to stop as soon as it comes in contact with salt water. Okay. What yeah. if it crashed in a fresh water or like in a jungle somewhere? Design flaw. <laughs> <laughs> I think that black boxes will, if they experience a severe force, they'll automatically go into like beacon mode or if they come into contact with salt water. And I have to imagine that they have versions for planes that don't fly over salt water because that would just be dumb. Now you have this thing that's never going to be used in this plane that's flying over the jungle. So one of the interesting things that I learned about transponders is a transponder helps the plane communicate with specifically ground radar. So if you've ever seen like, you know, that screen that air traffic control has with the plane dot and then like its name, that's what transponders help to do. So, when the ground sends a signal, the transponders will automatically respond with a squawk code. When a plane departs, 
it's given its own individual squat code. However, if something does happen during the course of the flight, so like if it's hijacked or if there's a problem with the radio, they can change their squat code to specific numbers, such as like 7700 or like 72 something something. So because these are automated responses between the plane and the ground, when this automated you know transaction happens the ground will automatically know oh this is like a code red or this plane's in trouble we need to do this immediately okay so that if there is a hijacking the pilot's not going shoot where's my radio i need to immediately right they can like almost sneakily do it if you want to say it that way isn't that cool yeah i didn't know that so they can kind of like sos signal air traffic control without like alerting anyone yes so there is some difference in opinion as to how you can turn off the transponders, which we're going to get to a little bit more in theories. Um, but just to say it here now, some people say that the pilots can simply turn it off in their cockpit just because some pilots will turn it off when they're successfully on the ground so as to not overwhelm air traffic control with things that they don't really need to be concerned with because they're on the ground now. Um, but regardless of how to turn it off, the only reason to turn it off mid-flight is to cover up something. Yeah. They're, yeah, they're either deliberately doing that or they're experiencing an electrical malfunction that they're trying to correct. Yeah, I heard differing reports as to how they could turn it off too. Like whether yeah. it was outside the plane and they didn't have access or whether they did or not. Yes, yeah. that was really, really frustrating. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thank you for doing research on the black box and everything because I could not understand any of what I was reading when I was trying to research a plane. This took so much time. I don't think I've spent this much time on like any other topic, but I feel like I have no information because it took me so long to like understand what was happening. Like it's really confusing stuff. Thank you to the people who wrote it for dummies, but a lot of the places that I saw were using terms that were like, only people that know their stuff that are trying to be pilots are going to be looking this information up. Even reading the Wikipedia article, I just, like, could not get it. I could not. (laughs) There was too many tabs open. I was trying to figure out what this word meant. Not as easy as I was expecting it to be. No. To be honest. All I really know is that planes are supposed to stay in the air, and this one probably didn't. Yes. Yes. I would second your notion. (laughs) Cool. Let's move on to the sequence of events. Events. We're going to talk about what exactly happened that evening, like hour by hour. At 12.42 a.m., the plane takes off Mm -hmm. from Kuala Lumpur in Malaysia. At 1.06 a.m., a position report is sent to air traffic control. It's just like half an hour after takeoff, not even. So we know that they were okay at that point. Important to note, too, during this time... The captain and the ground crew had had multiple interjections asking to climb height and stating where they were. Normal conversations. Yeah, I think when a pilot's flying a plane, they're kind of like always in contact with air traffic control. Especially until they get out of that range. The range of the control center. At 1.19am, there was the final recorded transmission between the flight and air traffic control. Kuala Lumpur air traffic control said, Malaysian 370, contact Ho Chi Minh 120.9. Good night. And then flight 370 responded, good night, Malaysian 370. I'm just going to play that real quick. So this is the last few seconds, the final recorded audio between air traffic control and OH370. Hey, 
listen to that yeah no one like, that was the final yeah we will get back to that final recorded audio later they were supposed to signal air traffic control in ho chi minh city in vietnam but they never did at 1:20 a.m just a minute later it was observed on air traffic control near the gulf of thailand so at this point it was still on the correct flight path headed towards beijing but just a minute later at 1:21 a.m it disappeared off radar Final report indicates a steady flight level and speed, and the flight level was between 31,000 and 38,000 feet, which is the average height for an airplane to fly, mm-hmm. and the speed was recorded at 471 knots. So it's unlikely at this point that it was due to a crash. Yeah. At 1:30 a.m., another plane nearby tried to contact flight 370, and they connected, but they only heard static and mumbling on the other end. I did read a report that also at around I think this time air traffic control was reporting perhaps a little bit of static with another connection to another flight. Yeah, so it's not like they directly turned off the communications. Maybe there was they a problem. They couldn't have. Yeah. Maybe there was a problem with it. So between 1:30 and 1:35 a.m., military radar caught the plane turning southwest across the Malay Peninsula, which is to be clear not the intended flight path. So it had turned from its original flight path, it turned southwest and headed kind of back towards Malaysia. It did pretty much a 360 degree turn. Yeah. All the way back around. Also important to note, the military didn't disclose this right away. They chose to wait. There was a lot of weirdness surrounding how they were communicating with people. Well, I mean, we'll get into it later. So, at 1:38, Ho Chi Minh Air Traffic Control contacts Kuala Lumpur Air Traffic Control and tells them that no verbal contact was made with the plane. So they hadn't contacted Ho Chi Minh like they had intended to. Mm-hmm. And this was roughly 18 minutes after this plane was actually supposed to be in their airspace. So they chose to wait 18 minutes before they were like, "Oh, I guess yeah, we should probably do something." Yeah. So at 2:03 a.m., Kuala Lumpur informs Ho Chi Minh City that the plane was in Cambodian airspace where it was not supposed to be at all. So I think that Kuala Lumpur took a guess. They just said, "Oh, according to this and this, the plane should be right there." No one actually took the time at this point, I believe, to fully check up on the plane. Yeah, it wasn't until 2:15 a.m. that Ho Chi Minh Air Traffic Control contacted Phnom Penh in, in Cambodia. Phnom Penh had not been able to establish contact with the plane, although they had realized that it was in their airspace, but they hadn't there hadn't been any contact between the two air traffic controls since then. Air traffic, they're the guys who can declare like the state of a plane. So whether a plane is in the state of emergency or contempt, I think is another one. And it was around this point, I believe, that they finally decided to raise alarm, like you said, actually declare it an actively missing plane. I know it's incredibly stressful. They could have acted a bit sooner. 
And then at 2.03, it flew across the Strait of Malacca, which again, complete opposite direction it was supposed to be going. At 2.22 a.m., it was detected for the last time on military radar, 439 kilometers or 273 miles from Penang Island at about 29,500 feet. So it was still well within the normal... Yeah, so they kind of went back across the land there and then out into the other ocean. Right. But it's interesting because they kind of, when they went off of their intended flight path, they didn't just keep going straight. They did Mm -hmm. continue to turn like they were headed somewhere, not like they were just on autopilot going somewhere. It's really easy to argue that this was totally deliberate because they perfectly flew in between the two airspaces. That's wild. Isn't it wild? They perfectly flew between, I believe it was um, Malaysian airspace and the military airspace. And they perfectly flew through the border, which was why the military didn't act and the Malaysian airspace didn't react. It's hard to argue that was just an accident. I know! I really wanted to believe that this was an accident. But after that, it's like, I don't know how much of that I can argue because that's kind of big evidence. Yeah, you would think that if their communications or whatever, like things had been t- turned off in the plane and they were just on autopilot, they would have wouldn't have turned at all. They would have no. just gone straight. And they wouldn't have turned and gone perfectly in between the two airspaces. So the satellite system that they use kind of sends out automated pings to the plane, like automated status updates hourly. So at 2.39, an hourly status request was made and it was acknowledged but wasn't responded to. Yeah, so that's all to do with the transponders on a plane. Oh, I love that. (laughs) So I love the transponders. If the plane has not made contact with anyone, there's an automatic system that will reach out and send like a handshake, I think is what they call it, right? And yeah, in this case, the plane did not complete the handshake. Okay, but they could tell that it had reached the plane, but they hadn't responded, right? Yes. Okay. So that tells us that it was still in the air, but for some reason, whatever reason, the people on board the plane were not contacting. Neither the people nor the plane itself was actually able to respond. Everything was offline and the plane was essentially totally dark in the air. Which means that all the lights were off and everything too, right? We're going to talk about that though. We will. Don't you worry. I'm so excited (laughs) to talk about that. Okay. So let's jump ahead a few hours to 5.30 a.m. And search and rescue finally started organizing. At 7.13, another hourly status request update was made. And at 7.24 a.m., Malaysian Airlines stated publicly that the plane had been lost and had not sent any distress signals prior. At 8.10 a.m., another signal request was made, and it was likely at this point that the plane was pretty much out of fuel. If it was still in the air, it was getting out of fuel. There was, I believe, one handshake that was actually completed, but this wasn't until they were pretty much at the end of their journey. It was mid through when they were actually searching for the plane that they discovered that another handshake had been made. From the Royal Aeronautical Society, they suggested that the plane was totally off up until it got pretty much to the end of Malaysian radar. Then it came back on radar 
So they say it's possible for only a number of seconds, just enough to complete like some sort of partial connection to the SATCOM, I believe. This is where they got the information that the plane then continued to sort of turn and continued straight pretty much for the rest of its journey. Because okay. that satellite connection link was made. So at 9.15 a.m., um, flight MH370 did not acknowledge the final status request, and that is all the communications had. That was a sequence of events that happened that night, and that's pretty much all we know specifically. Shall we talk a little bit more in detail about everything yeah. that happened? People question why there were no calls made by passengers, but they probably weren't close enough to the ground to make a call. On that, though, the first officer's cell phone reportedly pinged at some point. Does that mean he was on it or just that it was within range? Just that it was within range. Okay. Yeah. They wouldn't have had Wi-Fi on the plane if the systems had been turned off, right? If all electrical was off, then no. (laughs) Okay. I think that's kind of why this is so almost like scary because it's almost like a ghost plane you never heard from either the passengers or the pilots i just got chills did you really (laughs) when you said that so that's a good way to describe it because i take the same flight path for pretty much every flight that i've been on i'm pretty confident that i sort of understand the general direction that happened And there was one day we were leaving out of Vancouver and I thought that, you know, we were facing a normal direction. And all of a sudden we took the hardest turn to the right and kept turning. And then we started going in the wrong direction. And I immediately was like, I can tell on my little screen here that this is the wrong way to where we need to go. Yeah, it actually kind of freaked me out. And we ended up going around the airport and then took another hard right to go to the same direction. That's weird. Yeah. So I noticed. So hardcore I noticed. Okay. So regular passengers of the flight and the crew members would have noticed probably. Mm-hmm. And to note too, when they turned around, they didn't do it in like tiny increments. They pretty much fully turned around all at once. So when you're doing that, you are very much totally sideways, right? Like, you can noticeably tell that the sky is not in the right place when thinking about the way that you're facing. It was dark, though. You can still see stars. Because it was not a stormy night, they should have been able to see the stars on the moon. That's, yeah, and the lights of the city. That's a better argument. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, it was from Malaysia to Beijing. It was a scheduled daily flight. Someone on that plane would have raised alarm bells. I think so. Like, it is very possible that some of those people for work, right? They were going there every two weeks or every month, like it was a regular trip for them? Yeah. There are some theories, because they didn't send out any messages to the families, that perhaps they were being held hostage. We will be talking about that a little bit later. But something like this is so, like, rare, you know? Like, this doesn't happen. So, because it was confirmed that the plane's last recorded position was in the southern Indian Ocean, and we assume that's where it probably crashed, Malaysian Airlines and the government sent out different search teams, and they searched for three years without finding the plane. This is one of the most, if not the most, expensive aviation search in aviation history. This is super extensive and super expensive. (laughs) (laughs) 
before the military actually stepped in and said, oh, actually, we have this intel, they did send out a search team to the space between Malaysia and Beijing. I think it was only for either a few hours or a few days. Okay, because it didn't actually... It's not supposed to have crashed there, right? No, it's not supposed to have crashed there, but up until the military said that they actually had been able to track it returning, because the way that the military's radar works is, I believe, it reflects from the plane's body itself. So they were able to ping the plane with its body instead of having to use like the transponders and the radio signals like the air traffic control did. So they were able to track it for a little bit longer and a little bit better, but they didn't step in until after the search parties had already been deployed to the wrong area. So they just let them search for a while instead of telling them where it actually went down. Yes. Oh, that's sketchy. It is really sketchy. Yeah. I couldn't find any explanation for why they waited so long. They were really, like, kind of hush-hush about the whole Mm. investigation, which is why they gained so much criticism, especially from the families. They were not communicating with the families. No. I watched one documentary of an Australian lady. I'm so sorry, I don't remember her name. But I believe that she ended up finding out some information from the broadcasts itself. Like, she wasn't told anything, and then when she was, it was through a text. Not even, like, a formal letter, like, a phone call, like, anything. And in the end, and this was recently, I think this was in maybe 2017 or so, she was actually able to meet with the leader of Malaysia. She was able to sit down and talk with him, which was the first time, really, that Malaysia had done anything like that. And he, I believe, agreed that this was a tragedy and that they should either reopen the investigation or re-examine some of it. Yeah, it's crazy to me that instead of calling them or sending someone in person or even, like, sending an email, they sent text messages to the family. How impersonal is that? Could you imagine? I'd be livid. And my first response, too, is a text message. Like, this is clearly a prank. And you don't really get, like, anything. You don't get somebody reassuring you on the phone to, like, help Mm. you through this. Not cool. Yeah, we'll get a little bit more into the families, I think. So another investigation was launched, like a private investigation, was launched in January 2018, but it ended after just six months and they didn't find anything. So it's important to note that by this time, they had better intel, if you will, that led them to a probably more accurate range. Um, And they got this intel from once the plane made that SATCOM link when it was exiting Malaysian territory, it remained connected to that satellite. And I want to say the satellite was somewhere super far away from Malaysia. It was not over Malaysia at the time. And it was able to sort of track the plane. And that's how they got where they suspect the plane ended its journey. Yeah, because they were getting pings from the black box throughout this investigation. So they were... They were getting pings from the black box? Yeah. That's what I read. I heard that they never got pings from the black box. See, this is what I told you about. There's so many different pieces of information. This is one of the reasons that this was so difficult to research. Because I'd watch this, and then there'd be this information. And this would have different information. And this website would have something different. You're getting so heated. Sorry. (laughs) I'm talking so fast. Honestly, yeah. There's too much differing information, and I don't like it. No. 
because they were able to kind of track where it had supposedly they think crashed Mm -hmm. where it had went down and the different currents they were able to find out specifically where they thought it would be Mm -hmm. and that's where they kind of focused their search i guess we'll get into this later but um they did find a ton of wreckage pieces and of all the pieces they were only able to confirm three or four pieces of actually being from this aircraft through serial numbers and one of such pieces i believe was a piece of wing and it had specific barnacles on it that they were able to track through a specific current it's like some sherlock holmes type of stuff (laughs) barnacles crazy yeah (laughs) so yeah that falls with the currents you know what they were just talking about yeah so in january 2015 the disappearance was ruled an accident with no survivors it's very sad but it does allow for the families to seek financial compensation and i think that might be why they finally made that decision yeah so in january 2017 they stopped all searches as of march 2020 this year um the families are still calling for more searches to be done and the government is looking into that So there is one thing that I don't quite understand because I believe it was the Royal Aeronautical Society who suggested that after the SATCOM link, and I know I've said this before, but after the SATCOM link was detected, um, this specific link was able to ping them again on their way to Christmas Island or in the direction of Christmas Island. And if they had made it there, it would have taken roughly the same time it would have taken them to get to Beijing. Is there anything there? No. They could have landed there. It's hypothetically possible. But based on the various pings that happened, some analysts suggested that they were erratically flying at altitudes like raising and lowering their altitude erratically, which would have led to more consumption of fuel and they wouldn't have made it far enough. So that kind of points to the fact that maybe somebody was controlling the plane that wasn't the pilot, not somebody experienced. There is, of course, no necessarily proof that that actually happened. It's more just some analysis say this looks like this. There's a lot to unpack in this. There's honestly so much and it's so, it's so weird. All of it is just so weird. Mm -hmm. None of this should have happened. Yeah. Okay. Um, shall we talk a bit about the debris that they found? Yeah. So the search parties, the authorities assumed that like some debris would show up on shore eventually because it would be in a lot of pieces due to the force of the impact. From what they collected from like the satellite ping the data, they assumed that the plane eventually crashed because it ran out of fuel and that it crashed from a pretty high altitude. So it would have pretty much crashed and shattered on top of the water, which would have mm-hmm. created a lot of little pieces. Yeah, there is a very specific kind of vertical angle that it could have hit at and not shattered, apparently. But that's very specific and very unlikely. Yes, and especially because they were working under the assumption that they had made it to the end of their fuel gauge, essentially. Highly unlikely. When planes run out of fuel, I read that they don't fall out of the sky. They kind of Mm -hmm. just keep gliding until eventually they hit the ground. And obviously they don't land gently because they don't, they're not able to like control 
the speed at which they're landing or Mm -hmm. really anything yeah yeah the only way in which they'll fall out of the sky is if they go at an an incline upward in which they don't catch enough grip in the air to continue climbing and they essentially just lose altitude and fall straight down yeah yeah um they did find a few pieces of debris on shorelines i'll talk about the confirmed ones okay so in July 2015, the flaperon a was found on an island in the Western Indian Ocean. And then in December 2015, a piece of the flap track fairing, which is a piece of the wing, was found in southern Mozambique. And then in February 2016, a part of the stabilizer was found also in Mozambique. In March 2016, a piece of the engine was found in South Africa, which was identified by the Rolls-Royce logo. That was the engine company yeah. that they used. Which, which was so weird. Crazy. Yeah, I had no idea that Rolls-Royce made plane engines. No, me neither. Like, for some reason, when I think of plane engines, I just think of, like, I guess Boeing must make their own engines. That's I what I not. thought, too. Yeah, like, Boeing, I guess, just makes, like, the shell and the electrical And then also in March of that same year, a piece of the interior of the plane was found on an island in the Indian Ocean. In June 2016, an outboard flap from the wing was found again on an island in the Indian Ocean. And these are all the confirmed pieces of debris from MH370. So I think when a plane crashes, generally you'll find a significant amount of debris specifically in the area that it crashes, like suitcases or pieces of the exterior of the plane, like random assortment of things, you know, Mm -hmm. but this didn't happen. This really didn't follow the typical signs of other plane crashes, which was why some people question if it really crashed at all. Dun dun dun! (laughs) Yeah, some people think that the government could have faked these pieces of evidence so as to help the families move on and help the media stop looking into it. There's so many theories to this. Oh, so spooky! (laughs) Like we said at the top of the episode, there were a lot of internet sleuths that tried to find this plane, specifically on Google Maps and different satellite imagery sites i don't know if that's really how they work though i don't think that they're really up to date no i don't think they don't update every day right no (laughs) no no. (laughs) i was actually thinking about this the other day like i really do think that there's better satellite imaging out there because i find it hard to believe crazy as may sound that the government is actually sharing everything that they know with us wild who would think that (laughs) Plenty of internet sleuths did scour the internet, spouting all sorts of different theories, which we will talk about. This is also not to discredit any internet sleuths, because there have been plenty of examples where internet sleuths have actually helped solve cases. There have also been some examples where internet sleuths have hindered the solving of cases. Yeah. We're not gonna, like, discourage. We're not gonna discourage, exactly. (laughs) We're not gonna discourage any sort of internet sleuthings because we ourselves are internet sleuths. Yes. (laughs) And we think it's important to keep the curiosity alive for many reasons, including hopefully solving the investigation and keeping the spirit alive. 
I remember it being a very big thing among a few people that we knew, mm. as well as the internet in general. Yeah. I don't know if they went about it in the smartest way, but that's okay. They were trying. Well, trying is what counts. Yeah. So, just before we get into theories, I did note some similar cases. So, I'm going to start off on September 6th of 1970, where three planes were successfully hijacked. Um, They were all leaving Europe for the U.S., and they were successfully hijacked in midair, but they all landed off course, and they let off all the passengers and the crew, and they just held them as hostage. Now, I believe that the reason that this was really found out as quickly as it was is because there was a fourth attempted hijacking that failed because one of the passengers on the plane immediately said, no, this is not happening, and it just didn't work. Showing that this is successful, even though this was back in 1970, the idea was still there that they take the plane, they let the passengers off, and then they destroy the plane to make everyone think that this has happened. Right. So what they actually did was they let all but 40 hostages go, and then they were going to blow up the remaining airplanes. I believe that they threatened that in the last airplane that was left, they had the 40 remaining passengers and they were going to let them go once their demands were met. I believe in the end, either they let them go or they were captured. That was a happy ending. Apart from one of the hijackers in the failed attempts, no one was killed. I can't imagine being on a plane that's being hijacked. That would be so scary. So, on February 17th of a year that I didn't note down, that's cool, sorry, (laughs) Um, they were flying from Addis Ababa to Rome. (laughs) When the captain stepped out for a bathroom break, the first officer locked the door and attempted to land at Geneva. This was not a suicide mission, and he made sure to note to air traffic control that to avoid being shot down. Because that's one of the first concerns, right? That the plane's going to be weaponized against Mm -hmm. others. Yeah. To make a long story short, he made a safe landing um, and he had some demands, but I don't think he quite thought it through because he was like, I have these demands and I will land these people safely here if you give me these demands and I'm going to let you know what I'm doing so you don't shoot me down. And he landed them safely before he got his demands filled something like that and then he was arrested as soon as he like landed on december 28th 2014 it was an airbus so it wasn't a boeing and it was an airbus a320-200 with 162 people they were flying from indonesia to singapore so sort of the same area roughly 40 minutes into their two-hour flight contact was lost They lost all contact. Um, The flight disappeared over the sea and sent out zero distress calls. So this is similar to this MH370, right? However, they they did end up recovering pretty much the crash and it was due to some calm faults in the system that the maintenance crew was aware of but did not address it properly. So now I'm going to tell you the craziest one. Oh, okay. Yeah, so this starts on March 14th of 1962. It was a Flying Tiger Line Flight 739. So this could carry 106, roughly, passengers. 
So this was really like a military flight, essentially. And it was more of like a cargo plane, so it would carry either cargo or passengers. The specific flight had two flight crews, seven cockpit crew, four cabin crew, and 96 passengers. So 107 in total. They were flying from the Air Force Base in California to Vietnam, and they had three stops along the way to refuel, check the plane. All three stops were normal, fine, minor maintenance, refueling. They left, like I said, March 14th, 1962 at 5.45 p.m. Their final stop before they actually arrived at their destination was in Guam. And their last transmission was at 1,400 hours, roughly, the next day to advise their current altitude of 18,000 feet over the clouds. They had eight hours and 12 minutes of fuel left, but an hour later, the Guam flight service station noticed that there was heavy static on another flight call and just decided to touch base with this flight 739. They did that partially because of the static and partially because they hadn't had their regular scheduled check-in with them yet. They were unable to establish contact. So at that point, this plane kind of had disappeared. After a while, they finally declared a final distress phase, which, as I mentioned earlier, there are some phases, right, before they officially declare a plane as in distress needing emergency help. And the distress phase, technically speaking, states that the crew thinks there's reasonable certainty that the aircraft and its passengers are threatened by grave and imminent danger. So, um, at 1227, they finally declared the plane was lost because at this time it would have finally experienced fuel exhaustion. From when they left Guam, they had roughly eight hours left. So eight hours later, right? There was actually a boat, a super taker on the ocean at the time who called in to say that just a few hours earlier, they had witnessed a midair explosion. Oh, scary. Yeah, they first saw, you know, a trail of smoke in the sky and then saw a large explosion followed by, they said, two flaming objects that fell into the sea and obviously immediately approached. And like you said, right, when a plane crashes, you expect to see debris yeah. all over the surface. There was nothing and there has never been anything found from that. That's scary. Mm -hmm. I got chills. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't find that one on my first, like, three searches of similar cases, and then on, out of desperation, no, <laughs> for no real reason, I just decided to do a fourth search and found that one. The cases are similar, apart from someone saw something happen, whereas this plane, no one saw anything, and it just disappeared. The flight path didn't change that, right? It was still no. a scheduled flight path? Yes. Okay. Yeah. That's true. That's another difference. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Okay, that's creepy. I've never heard of that case before. No, me neither. <laughs> that's spooky. I think, like, the biggest the biggest difference between Flight MH370 and, like, any case before it is the fact that it was so recent. Like, we have so much technology and there's so much going into finding this plane that just Can't. won't be found. Yeah. There's really nothing. I mean, there's no reason a plane should have disappeared like that back then either. That's scary. No, I know. Ooh, I don't like it. <laughs> okay, let's talk a bit about the theories. So the first one I have down is about the pilot. So the pilot, Captain Zahari Ahmad Sahad, he had a flight simulator in his house, which I don't think is uncommon for pilots. No, I did read somewhere that that is just like a Xbox game, like not necessarily an actual airplane endorsed flight simulator. Yeah, I've heard that it's pretty easy to kind of just make them and have them in your house. Yes. 
So six weeks before the flight, he practiced a route that was very similar to the MH370 flight path and how it veered off the same way in the simulation it veered off in real life. Which is scary. He did um, apparently delete it off his hard drive, but the authorities were able to recover it. That's even scarier. (laughs) Yeah. So this leads some people to believe that it could have been a murder-suicide plot by the pilot. I'm not sure about this. I don't- I never want to believe, like, the bad thing. No, of course not. One thing that made it hard, too, is that there was a a well-respected colleague of his that spoke on his behalf, saying that, you know, he'd flown with him for a number of years and had always known him to be a very well-balanced stand-up guy. Couldn't even contemplate the idea that this captain could have done something like that. Yeah. Um, his family also vouched for him and said, no, this would never happen. There had been reportedly um, some problems in his marriage. I read that too. Yeah, but like I said, his family vouched. His family vouched for him. His friends said there was no real alarm bells. And being a pilot, you do have to undergo regular testing. You have a serious job. Yeah. <laughs> you physically need to be okay. Mentally, you need to be okay. The airlines have to make sure that you're equipped to handle that job. Yeah, and this guy had been flying for like 30 years. Which is a long time. Yeah, but it is possible. So it is something we should talk about, I guess. I guess. I no. guess. <laughs> I'm always going to go with the craziest theory. I'm of pretty course. sure it was aliens, but you know. <laughs> so authorities believe that it could have been um, the pilot because somebody needed to have access to the flight systems in order to have changed the plane's autopilot. And they believe that turning off the communications, rerouting the plane, doing all this different stuff would have been too difficult for anybody on that plane except for the experienced pilot. And that's including the co-pilot. They believe Mm -hmm. he couldn't have done that. I guess possibly in support of this theory, the aeronautical... The Royal Aeronautical Society? Yes, thank you. I'm so glad you remember their name. They came up with some information that along MH370's path, had they kept flying on their course once they turned around and, you know, um, started flying towards the edge of Malaysian airspace, or they would have been close enough to two planes that they could have possibly been seen. At some point, they decided to sort of veer off just a little bit to the right. Had they stayed exactly where they were, there was a plane directly behind them that should have been able to see them, and there was a plane coming directly in front of them that should have been able to see them. If their lights were on. Exactly. So this begs the question, why couldn't they see them? Why were there no lights on? That's the only way they wouldn't have been able to see them, right? If the cockpit lights were off, the inboard lights were off, the outboard, like the wing lights were off, and the tail lights were off, they would have been totally dark flying in the sky. Um, that's scary. Um, <laughs> so not only is that terrifying, because at no point in time should planes be that close to each other, <laughs> they knew that there was another plane there. So the person flying the plane must have been able to see it and been able to maneuver around it. Mm-hmm. I've never flown a plane before, but I imagine no. that would be <laughs> something you would need to practice a few times. I would, I would imagine so. That <laughs> must take some skill. <laughs> Okay, that's really scary. Yeah, from what I understand about autopilot, it'll still drive you in like a straight course, but the system won't automatically shift you up or down or to the right or the left. Or like if you're going to head on collide with another plane, there's an alarm that goes off and tells you to either pull up or push down. 
Yeah, once a plane is in the air, it basically automatically flies itself mm-hmm. through the flight path on the computers, and like pilots are basically there to take control if they have to, and to take off and land. So The important parts. The important parts. <laughs> once it's in the air, basically it's flying itself. Okay, so authorities did say that if the plane disappeared due to human involvement, that he was a prime suspect. Yeah, and I think he's been a prime suspect for most of their investigations. This this was kind of determined to be unlikely. It was determined to be an accident. I think he was a good enough pilot that he couldn't have done something like that. No, and I find it hard to believe that his co-pilot and the crew members would have let him. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about the hijacking theory, I guess, and okay. how it relates to the pilot. So people believe that the plane could have been hijacked and that the pilot kind of typed in a flight path that he remembered from his flight simulator so as to arouse suspicion among air traffic control and hopefully get help. Interesting. Um, In the final communications with air traffic control, he did kind of start off the broadcast. He wasn't stumbling over his words or muttering. He was speaking confidently. Mm -hmm. But as he got to the end of the broadcast, he started stumbling over his words. The very last one, right? It was almost like he forgot what his tag was. Yeah, he was like, goodnight, um... MH370, yeah. Yeah. And some people think that they can hear another voice in the background. (gasps) Ew. Okay, I didn't hear that. They also think that at the end of the broadcast, he kind of sounded like an American. Like he kind of lost his accent. Ooh. Okay, chills. Don't like that. And I kind of I kind of hear that. Yes. Yeah. That I can hear. They did investigate everybody on board. So when hijacking is kind of deemed unlikely because nobody yeah. on board had any sort of suspicion. No. And like we mentioned earlier, right, there were those two with fake passports, but they were quickly dismissed. Yeah. So there is a U.S. military base in the Indian Ocean called Diego Garcia, and people on the islands around this area claim to have seen a plane flying low on the day of the disappearance. So if the Malaysian military, if their radars were able to pick up this flight, why wasn't the U.S. military's radars able to pick up this flight here? Well, some people theorize that they could have shot down the plane because they saw it on their radar, freaked out, and shot it down. Okay, that that makes sense. (laughs) And then, like, covered it up. So that's a theory. Other people say that the plane could have been hijacked and taken to this base to become basically the United States property, but I don't really understand that, why they would do Mm. that. The U.S. wants a Boeing, they'll just buy a Boeing. Yeah, there's not really much point. Yeah, but like that that theory would explain why there was no debris, basically. Yeah. And then other Mm. people believe that it could have been hijacked and taken as sort of like a weapon to crash into this base. Okay. I feel like I could see that one more than the U.S. just taking it. But obviously that didn't happen. (laughs) Um, (laughs) This base also was relatively small. It wasn't like a major base. Okay. And um, generally when terrorist groups commit terrorism, they take credit for it. That's why they do it. Yes. So unless it was a failed attempt, but even then they still succeeded in taking a plane full of people. Yeah. I imagine somebody would have taken credit for that if that was the purpose. Yeah, and I'd imagine, right, the part of the purpose is too to spread the little bit of fear, to show this is the power that we have. They would have said, right, mm-hmm. well we got this far. Yeah. Some people believe it could have been taken to a different secret location. But then again, why didn't they like reach out to government authorities and been like, here are our hostages, here are our demands? Yeah. See, that kind of falls in line with like the Christmas Island theory. Yeah. Right? Because if you look at that island, map this out with me in your minds. 
So picture the island in the middle, picture the plane coming in from the left at the last leg of its journey, the very end of its journey. They would have just needed to make it to the right side of the island where there was, dare I say, enough of a straight stretch for them to land. This is a tiny, tiny island though. They would have spotted a plane on it or in its shallow waters. So that's not a very likely theory either. <laughs> yeah, but both of those theories would explain why there's basically no debris. Yeah, that's true. Also, there is technology that can control planes from the ground for like safety reasons, and it's possible that the plane could have been hijacked this way and taken control of, flown to somewhere where it was off radar somehow. It's possible. So, hydrophones are devices that sort of stem from the ocean floor and they measure energy movements. So, waves, essentially. An expert named Dr. Usama Kadri, he is an expert in fluid dynamics, he put forth the theory that had the plane hit the surface of the water, it would have created a pretty big boom, right? Pretty big water displacement that should have been captured on one of these many hydrophones around the areas. Okay. They checked all of the recordings. They checked as many as they could. I believe they checked all of them in the surrounding areas and they weren't able to find anything conclusive. That's bizarre. I, I don't think they were even able to find like something small enough that happened during the window that MH370 would have crashed. That's scary. Yeah. It honestly seems like this plane kind of just disappeared, disappeared out of thin air. This is sort of why I wonder if it could have landed somewhere and then maybe they remotely took control of the plane or something and moved it somewhere else or just like you said the government took pieces. This is another one, right, where if you piece different theories together, you can make something that makes sense, but... Yeah, one theory alone doesn't explain it. But none of these theories really explain why, because the pilot was really the only one who could have possibly turned off the radar, like the transponders, mm -hmm. why didn't he send a message? Why didn't he send a distress signal before he did that? Yeah, there really isn't, thus far that I've seen, any one theory that can explain. It's sort of like the Dyatlov Pass. Yeah. There's no one theory that can explain everything. Which is why it's so frustrating. Yeah. <laughs> I found a theory by a reportedly experienced pilot who suggests that this is what might have happened. His name is Chris Goodfellow, with 20 years experience as a Canadian Class 1 pilot. He sounds reliable. He's Does Canadian he? and his name is Goodfellow. Good. Exactly. How can you not, you know, trust that? <laughs> so this sort of disproves that it was the pilot that did this. So he suggests that the very first U-turn is the biggest tell um, in which it's signaling that the pilot may have experienced a serious problem, specifically because the plane went dark and went off of radar. An explanation for this would have been an electrical fire. So when a plane experiences an electrical fire, the first response is for the pilots to start isolating the panels. So they'll start by turning off everything and then turning everything back on one by one to see where the problem lies. So that would explain why as soon as they turned, made that U-turn, they would have turned everything off. So step one, realize the problem, U-turn. Step two, turn everything off to try and accurately respond to that. The pilot here, so Chris, he noted a bit of a slogan, if you will, and said that avians navigate and lastly communicate. That's sort of the mantra in really severe situations. Okay. So which would make sense as to why then no distress signal was put out. They didn't change the transponders note. Like I said before, right? You can change your four digit code to signify that something's wrong. 
So as he himself is an experienced pilot, he said that most experienced pilots will always know their closest airport regardless of where they are. And since this was like a daily route, it's likely that the captain would have known if this happens here, I can quickly turn around here. This would be the safest place for me to go. Yeah, so he was basically trying to do an emergency landing because something went wrong. Pretty much, yeah. Chris, he said that when you look at like Google Maps, you can see that there's like a ridgeway and you can kind of, you know, map it out. So after sort of mapping everything out, he said, it looks like this pilot could have been taking a direct route to Palau Lungkawai, which would have had a 13,000 foot airstrip with an approach over the water and no obstacles. Whereas had he turned directly back around to the Malaysian airstrip, there would have been a ridgeway, some obstacles. It would have been much more difficult for him if they were experiencing some trouble. And this other airport in Lankawai was closer to him. He also suggested a possible reason for the fire, stating that it was a relatively warm night. Um, There would have been a lot of pressure during takeoff as the plane was very full. Um, There would have been sea directly around where they were taking off. And they had a long run to take off from the airport. Had all of these features created a fire, this would have created a ton of smoke that would have almost definitely gotten into the plane. This could play into, I think, your next theory, um, where tons of smoke got in, hypoxia may have taken over the passengers. There's always more oxygen in the cockpit, right? They're the people that have to fly the plane. It makes more sense, terrifying as it is. And this could explain why there was never any distress code that was ever happened or that ever showed. And that for the almost remainder of the trip, you could argue that autopilot took over. That makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. There were lithium-ion batteries in the cargo hold. Why? I don't. Why know. were they there? I don't Who know. Put and them? I don't know what they do. I don't know anything about them. But like, I do know that if they overheat, they can catch fire. Mm-hmm. They can ignite. That could have happened. Wow, I didn't know that <laughs> was a thing. So that could have led to the smoke inhalation, like you were saying, and mm-hmm. made the crew kind of pass out. But I imagine that if they were passing out, you would turn on the transponders and be like, hey, help us, mm-hmm. and then turn them off again, because at that point it's too late. Yeah. It is possible because the transponders turned off, if, with, if it was like an electrical fail of some sort, mm-hmm. that um, the pressurizing system on board the plane also failed, Would've, yeah, leading to gradual decompression, leading to hypoxia, mm-hmm. and, and like, like made everybody basically on board pass out before they realized what was happening. So that's scary. Yeah. Like I mentioned earlier, some people speculate that there was a rather erratical flight path um, vertically that was taken up and down, up and down. Chris says that this could possibly be due to if there was a fire on board and the pilot had really no other option, they could have started by going to a higher elevation to, you know, there's less oxygen up there, essentially choke out the fire, make it stop. And if that didn't work, they could have turned to drastic measures, which could have been trying to nosedive down to get the airflow to stop the fire. Right. Yeah. Which is terrifying. That is actually so terrifying. It is weird to me that if that were the case, when the plane nearby flight MH370 at 1.30 tried to signal them and only heard static and mumbling on the other end, like that kind of tells me that they didn't hear, they, they weren't trying to communicate. Because if you're freaking out, you're going to be like, SOS, enunciate very like, very clearly yeah, as much as you can. there'd be no mumbling. He wouldn't have had transponders turned off at that point. No. That being said, I do think this is the most likely theory. 
I really hate to say that, but I do agree. But it also doesn't explain the fact that, like, it flew for another many hours. If it started at, like, 1.30 after they did the U-turn or whatever, mm-hmm. or before they did the U-turn, it, like, went Continued. on for hours and hours and hours. Yeah, for a very long time. Yeah, and, like, halfway through their change in course, they did turn, so they were still conscious and aware and able to turn the plane at that point. Yes, see, that is what kind of disproves that. For me too because yeah. there would have had to have been someone flying the plane because autopilot well i guess unless it was a predetermined course autopilot would take you there but, but... they would have landed like they turned around to do an emergency landing and they didn't like i do think that's the most likely scenario but at the same time why didn't they land this would explain the first u-turn but it wouldn't explain all the other turns and exactly the weirdness there yeah Okay, so let's talk about the theory that the government could have been involved. Okay, let's do it. <laughs> government. Yeah, and by the government, I mean both the Malaysian government and the American government. So, apparently, I've heard, rumor has it... Rumor has it. The former Malaysian prime minister believes that the CIA knows where the plane is and is hiding Whoa. it. Whoa! It's just a claim. Wow, that's quite something to say, isn't it? He doesn't really give a whole lot of explanation as to why they would want to do this besides the fact that they wanted a Boeing 77. I mean, that's not the best argument, but I guess it's an argument. I feel like the U.S. would just buy a plane if they wanted a plane. I mean, I would imagine so. I mean, they're the government. Can't they do, like, anything? Yeah, they can, and they do. (laughs) Scary. After the accident, authorities were criticized for the lack of speed, details, and accuracy in communication and search efforts. So they really didn't talk to the press or the families until it was way too late. They didn't seem to plan out their search efforts until it was already too late. Yeah, the um, the Royal Aeronautical Society really held the towers accountable, like the air traffic control accountable, saying that they displayed a really poor job. Yeah. At the same time, I don't know how you deal with a situation like this that doesn't happen. Like, this just doesn't happen. Yeah, this is like the first of its kind, right? So it's really like, how do you even prepare for that? Yeah. How do you train for something that hasn't happened yet? They were also criticized for why they didn't send jets to shoot it down. Like, the military's criticized? Yeah. If a plane enters an airspace that it's not like a no-fly zone, they will send jets up to see like what's wrong. Like maybe the pilot had a heart attack or something's going on in the yeah. plane. They will try to help. But if they can't do that, they will shoot it down at a point where they know that it will land somewhere where there will be minimal loss of life. Okay. Yeah, because they're able to kind of... Um, gauge. Yeah, gauge the tra- trajectory. But they didn't do that, and the reason that they give is because it was a commercial flight, and they didn't deem it a uh, risk, like a a weaponized risk. Okay, that's not a very good excuse. Yeah, because, like, they could have shot it down. They could have potentially saved lives. Like, I I can't imagine why they just decided to let this plane fly off. Like, nothing good is going to happen. After it passes land and goes back into the sea again, it wasn't going for an emergency landing, obviously. No. Something's happened, Mm -hmm. and they need to make sure that the least amount of people get hurt, right? They should have. Again, nothing here. We're stating as fact. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Like, just like to reiterate that. (laughs) Yeah, we're just speculating. I do have some kind of crazy theories that we could talk about. Okay, yeah. Some people believe that the plane could have gone through some sort of like portal, wormhole, Bermuda Triangle type of thing and ended up in another dimension. So, now that I've given you the craziest thing, what do you think about that? Of course, everything is up for discussion with me. I definitely think this is possible. 
I don't know why it wouldn't be. I have no proof as to why it couldn't be possible. Of course, I mean, it doesn't explain the bizarre flight path. Like, again, none of these theories explain the others. No. There's no okay. evidence to back up this theory, except for the fact that it's completely bizarre that a plane kind of just disappeared. Do you know anything about remote viewers? I don't think so. Some people believe they can project their consciousness to other places. Oh, dang. Okay. Yeah. So a lot of these remote viewers believe that the plane had to be taken so as to prevent a bigger catastrophe. I got chills. That's Again. Like the ooh. scariest thing I've ever heard. So is that kind of like the awake version of... Um... Astral projection? Yeah. Yeah. Essentially. Oh, Apparently okay. you can like train your body, train your brain to do that. Dang, okay. I don't know how accurate it is. So I don't really know too much about that because there's not that much information out there that isn't complete, <laughs> completely bizarre. <laughs> like I read like explanation about this and it was just like, I can't. Oh my gosh, okay. But that is a theory that a lot of people have. And apparently the government has used remote viewing as like they've like tested it and stuff. So like the, the government does test stuff like this, which is super bizarre. They like go into these theories and they try to like test it to see if they can like use it. We should do a whole podcast on Actually, that. that would be so cool. Yeah. <laughs> Some people believe that it was taken by aliens. Totally possible. Anything's possible. I don't know why they would want a flying Boeing 77. They might want the people on it, though. Like, they might want to know how we fly planes because they have UFOs that they fly. That's a good point. I don't That's know how true. aliens work. No, neither do I. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about the mysterious voicemail related to MH370. So in March 2018, a Twitter account called At Straight Away posted a video of a voicemail he got. Basically, this video was like a Siri-type voice, like an electronic voice, saying a series of words in the NATO phonetic alphabet, which is an alphabet used in the military. When translated, it said, Danger, SOS, it is dire for you to evacuate. Be cautious, they are not human. 0429339642300, SOS, danger, SOS. When I heard this, because I totally forgot about this, I was so, like, freaked out of my mind. Yeah. I actually don't think I could sleep that night. This was wild. <laughs> yeah. This was so scary. This was so scary. This kind of blew up the internet. So the series of numbers after the message are thought to be coordinates that happen to be near Malaysia, where the plane may have gone down. That was my first thought on that, too. Those yeah. have to be coordinates. Yeah. So the guy who posted it, his name is Ty. He got messages on Twitter in other languages as well as in Morse code. And these messages basically said things like delete the post or they are coming. So is it just internet trolls or is it something else? That's scary. Yeah. So a lot of people think that the voicemail could have been the black box recording from the flight. Okay, let's debunk this a little bit. It's four years after the fact. Can black boxes even do that? send a, f a oh. voicemail no yeah no, I, no, yeah no, i didn't i was pretty sure that they couldn't but i was like maybe i'm missing something here yeah so this is suggesting then that someone found the black box extracted the footage or the recordings from it and sent it to ty sure okay there's like no no explanation okay. for it except people think this may have been it 
Also, as we've discussed, the black box recording, it records what's in the cockpit. It doesn't just have, like, yeah. a Siri voice saying these, like, military words. That was exactly what I was going to say. Like, so one of the pilots just decided to start talking, like, Siri. Yeah. <laughs> like, I don't think that makes sense. Yeah, it doesn't really make sense. The implications of it are scary because it's like, we have to evacuate, we have to be cautious, they are not human. That's scary. So a lot of um, YouTubers and like internet people talked about this after it happened. I remember watching so many videos and being so into this because I was so freaked out by it. Yeah. Even if I don't really believe it, it's still a scary thing, right? Absolutely. With a lot of scary things for me, at least I have to sort of prove it to myself that it's not real. Yeah. (laughs) The guy who got the um, voicemail sent to him, he did an interview with a fairly popular conspiracy YouTuber, and he he seemed really credible. He thinks that it was just a weird thing that happened. He swears it's not a prank, it's not a hoax. He kind of just wants it all to go away Aww. because people were being like mean to him on the internet as well, people are because they suck. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't make sense, but yeah, people probably gave him death threats over this. Yeah. He, he doesn't know what's up. He doesn't know what happened. He did have a person standing outside of his house at like 3 a.m. No. a few days before this happened. So make of that what you will. <sighs> Hate that. It is a really weird and specific thing to send to someone as a joke, as a prank. And the fact that no one came forward afterwards... And I, like, I can understand, right, perhaps, like, not once everything kind of blew up, right? Because mm-hmm. then that's, you know, that's tough. Yeah. But eventually... Ty, who who posted it, thinks that none of his friends would have done it, or if they had, they would have taken credit for it. Yes. Yeah. And he also wasn't a huge internet persona. There was no reason why some random person would send it to him, because he didn't have that much of a following. Yeah, that's a good point. I don't really know what to say about that, except that's spooky. Super spooky. Maybe it's like a lost type of situation where they land on an island and everybody's just there kind of trying to survive until they get found. That's so sad. It is bizarre. This is really one of the strangest cases. And the fact that it's so recent makes it even stranger. Like, I remember this happening. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, like, this is the only time where a plane has gone missing that we really have no idea what happened to it. We have no concrete evidence. So what do you think happened to Flight MH370? Oh my goodness. <laughs> I really don't know. Like, as much as I think that the pilot and the co-pilot were reliable, they seem to be pretty reliable. There are some pieces of evidence that are just a little bit too difficult to totally ignore, like the flight plan and the thought that someone really did need to manually steer the plane, especially when it was totally dark. I don't know. I don't see why there couldn't be a strange theory such as an alien ship just, you know, took hold of the plane or decided to visit it. Yeah, that's what I'm going with. It was aliens. Is that really what you're going with? Yeah, I think it was aliens. Yeah. (laughs) I'm pretty sure. I don't think there's any other way that it could be explained. Especially with it just completely disappearing. Yeah, none of it makes sense. Really none of it. This is scary. It's very scary. Especially being on planes often. Like, it's... It is tough to know that these things happen and yeah. that it, it's so strange and there's totally no explanation at all i've heard the term like ghost ship but i've never heard the term ghost plane so this really? is kind of like the first ever ghost plane yeah much love to the families that have had to go through you know the treatment from the poor management if you will in relations between the airline and relaying the information to you yeah I think eventually one day this could be solved. Yeah. 
eventually. I mean, it took a few years for the Titanic to be found too, right? If anything can be solved, I think this can. There's no reason why it shouldn't be able to be solved. So I hope eventually the family and all of us get answers for what happened. Closure. Yeah, closure. Well, what do you guys think? Yeah, let us know what you think because we have a bit of an announcement. Yes. (laughs) Um, We do have a website. It is weirdthingsandwine.com. I made the website, and I'm not great at making websites, so it's not a super great website. But if you want to go look at it and find out a little bit more about us, as well as we all have all our podcasts posted there, we have ways to contact us, and we're working on social medias, which hopefully maybe will be up in the next next time we post a podcast. But it's www.weirdthingsinline.com. It's www. It's not www. No, it's www. <laughs> You're right. You're correct. So it's weirdthingsandwine.com. Yeah. And you can contact us at weirdthingsandwine at gmail.com. So, like, if you have any suggestions for future podcasts or ways we can make the podcast better. Yeah, constructive criticism. Constructive criticism. Please shoot us an email. If you just have questions you want to talk to us about. or If you want to mention how much you love the animals in the background. Because I know I do. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, so weirdthingsandwine at gmail.com. Anyways, that's that. Thank you for listening to this episode and going on this journey with us trying to figure out what happened. happened? Thank you for joining us. Yes. Yeah. Stay weird. Drink wine. Shall we cheer out? Cheers. (laughs) (laughs) Stick around for some bloopers and outtakes. Oh, oh, I guess I should probably, okay. Sorry. Or whatever. I'm dumb. (laughs) Dum dum dum. Okay. <laughs> I just think we'd make a good t-shirt. Yeah. We could be like Shall we jump right into it? Can we can have like a wine glass and then like somebody like a diving board and a miniature person Oh for five cents. Glass. That's amazing. I love that so much. <laughs> you can't cheers and not drink. I this is a drinking <laughs> podcast. We drink here. <laughs> Took off from an amazing Okay. I was so confident there, too. I started it off so well. <laughs> MH370 was a Malaysian Airlines. Oh, hi. Um, there's a spider. What? Where? Oh. Okay. I, I, can, I can, like, sweep it. Okay. Oh, you missed. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is a really good wine. I'm thriving. <laughs> Dang, they're more adults than we are. <laughs> I mean, they are. We're only like babies. We're baby We're adults. We're baby adults. Yeah. <laughs> I cannot be a flight attendant because I'm too short. I can't be a flight attendant because I'm too tall. <laughs> We're basically twinning, except opposite. Opera twinning? Opera twinning. <laughs> what the bleep is going on? Oh, wait. Do it, do it one more time. <laughs> I'd be like, what the bleep <laughs> is going on? <laughs> make a good like therapy cat or like a ow (laughs) besides that (laughs) i would like to wait until teslas can fly (laughs) yeah or at least like become a boat yeah boat car yeah yeah (laughs) oh we've been recording this whole (laughs) time i'm so sorry i didn't think i didn't think you started recording that's why i was acting like a dimwit (laughs) 
You get the gist. It's weird things in mine. Just Google it. that. You'll Google find it. it. Eventually. Yeah. <laughs> my ha- it might be on like the third page of Google results, but you will find it.